Buy more, save more with a patio door at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Buy three windows, save $500. Buy six, save $1,000. Buy a dozen, save $2,000 by adding a patio door. But only through April 30th. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Let's get started. Not everything old is historic. Sometimes it's just old. And not everything that is old and historic necessarily deserves to or can be saved because sometimes even stuff that's old and historic has outlived its usefulness and it costs too much to continue to operate it like like it was. Not everything is the house where Abraham Lincoln was built, was born. Got it? Okay, so that's my basic premise. On top of that, I believe a couple things. First of all, I believe that you buy it As a general rule, you should get to do what you want with it. Now, I understand when it comes to property, there's certain limitations on that. If you live in a condo complex, when you move in, you you have to acknowledge that there's certain rules. There's things that you're not going to be able to do. Similarly, there are things like zoning rules and public safety rules and stuff like that. If, If you buy a house in the middle of a residential neighborhood, you can't put up a Walmart if it's not zoned for industrial or zoned for commercial. But as a general rule, I think think if you buy it, you should get to do what you want with it. Which brings me to this story from Milwaukee that I've been wanting to talk to you about for a while. The old Columbia Hospital building, and maybe maybe if you are old enough, you, you can remember this. Columbia Hospital, which has now become Ascension, Columbia Hospital had an old series of buildings on Maryland Avenue, just kind of to the west of UWM. Columbia stopped using those buildings years and years ago and closed down their facilities. So they they, they didn't need them anymore. They had the campus that was on uh, kind of by the lake, the old Columbia St. Mary's, now Ascension, that's kind of by the lake. They didn't need this old series of buildings. And there were six buildings, but the primary one is this hospital that uses hospital. Maybe, you know, maybe you were born there. Maybe you have a family member who, I don't know, went into the hospital there. Okay, but the building outlived its usefulness. The building was originally built in 1919. And then it was added on to like in the 20s and 30s and added on to again in the 50s. But, but so it's been there for, for over 100 years. The problem is it became antiquated, it became outdated, and Columbia didn't need it anymore to run it as a hospital. So what they did is they sold that building and a couple others that they owned on that same property. But the big one was was the former hospital. They sold it to UWM in 2010, more than a decade ago. UWM paid, I think, like $20 million for the property. Now, UWM isn't in the hospital business. UWM never intended to run this as a hospital, right? 
what they wanted to do is they wanted to buy the land and they wanted to buy the buildings to see, okay, what they could do with it. Originally, they thought maybe they could use it, I think, for like a school of education or something. But the problem was once they got in and looked at it, it really wasn't suitable for that. The the heating system, it's these old steam vents, they're, they're shot. The plumbing system is shot. The um, uh, the the uh, ceilings are too low. It it's just not suitable to use it for that. So then they thought, okay, well maybe we can convert this building. Maybe we can use it for student housing. Well, at that point in time, people in the neighborhood just threw a hissy fit. No, no, you can't use it for student housing. You know, we don't want student housing over there. So UWM said, okay, well we're not going to do that. So over the last several years, they've looked at different things that they could maybe do to use this building, and. It, They've come up snake eyes on every time they've rolled the dice. There's just there's nothing good that they can figure out what to do with it because it's a building that was built in 1919, and in order to retrofit it, you would be talking about millions and millions of dollars. And, and even then, you'd still have the, this old building. Um, it costs them about a quarter million dollars a year to, to just maintain it at a minimum level and, and to heat the, the building. So it's this huge money drain. So UWM looked at this and looked at this and finally said, look, this, this is it's just not going anywhere. And they've owned it, like I say, for 10 or 12 years. And they decided a few years back, the only thing that makes sense is we're going to tear it down. It, we're, you know, we're, we're just going to, we're going to raise it tear it down. It's going to cost us a couple million dollars to tear it down, but then we'll be able to build something new. We'll be able to build something moderate, modern on this land that's much more conducive to our, our purposes. Because what we're doing now is we're just throwing you know money around trying to maintain this building that we're never going to be able to use in its condition. All right. Now, that you think about that, it makes a lot of sense. Sometimes, you know, you, you have older buildings, you just got to make way for them. All right. Into this, however, rolls the City of Milwaukee Historic Preservation Commission, who then decides, wait a minute, what what do you mean you're going to take this 100-year-old building that has outlived its useful facility, it was a hospital, it's never going to be a hospital again, what do you mean that you are planning to have this torn down? How, How dare you say that this is going to be torn down? So you get some of these preservationist folks who say, don't you understand that this empty, failing, dilapidated building is a valuable piece of cultural and architectural history? It exemplifies a new and, I'm quoting now, a new and modern type of hospital that was directed by science and research. It is an example of the Georgian revival design. It is the only Milwaukee building designed by architectural firm out of Chicago, Schmidt, Garden, and Martin, an architectural firm that designed more than 300 hospitals, most of which have been torn down. Why? Because they're torn down because they they had outlived their usefulness. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, we see this play out you know, all the time. So what happened the other day is the Historic Preservation Commission voted to designate this dilapidated, outdated hospital as a historic monument, an historic location, which would prohibit any 
any demolition of the building, and it's now served to put UWM's plans on hold while they have to pay to maintain it. Now, ultimately, that the Common Council gets the final say of this, UWM says, wait a second, the building is in incredibly poor condition. It would cost us 100 to $200 million to redevelop this, this building. And even then, we'd have a building that's 100 years old. Our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, here's my position. If the folks on this Preservation Committee Commission want to buy this, they think it is so important to maintain this, you know what? They should go out. They should raise the money. They should find the tens of millions of dollars it would take to buy the building, and then they can do whatever they want with it. Otherwise, it belongs to UWM. It is outdated, and I think it should be torn down if they want to tear it down. 855-616-1620, and that is my general principle when it comes to old buildings in general. They have a useful life. Abraham Lincoln is not born in all of them. And once that useful life expires, their owners should be able to take them down and do what they want with them. What am I missing? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Decision Wisconsin. Please join WTMJ and 101.7 The Truth today. That's Tuesday for a special election night coverage. It's going to be co-anchored by John McCure and Dr. Ken Harris. Starting at 8 this evening, we're going to be broadcasting on 101.7 The Truth FM, WTMJ.com, and the WTMJ mobile app. Join us as we give you the results of all the local races, including for the next mayor of Milwaukee. It's Decision Wisconsin this Tuesday with News Radio WTMJ and 101.7 The Truth. All right, 855-616-1620. I'm sorry, just get them up. This stuff makes my head want to explode. If you're just tuning in, about 10 or 11 years ago, UWM spends $20 million. They buy the vacant hospital building that used to be Columbia Hospital. Well, Columbia wasn't using it as a hospital anymore. It was a vacant building. They didn't need it. It's on the west side of the campus on on Maryland Avenue. UWM buys it. They're, They're looking at different uses for the building, school of education, maybe student housing. But once they get in there, they find that the cost of retrofitting that this old hospital building, which is 100 years old, and the heating system is shot, and the plumbing system is shot, and you've got the 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 ceilings, which are too small, and Lord knows whatever problems they have. But they look at different uses for it, and they ultimately conclude it's it's just not going to be workable. So they decide, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, it's costing us hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just to, just to heat the thing. Um, meanwhile, it's deteriorating. It's not getting any better. What we need to do is we, we want to we tear it down. We think it's going to cost us $200 million to retrofit it. And even then, we've got a 100-year-old building. So we're, we tear it down, cost us $6 million, and then we'll, we'll build something newer in its place. Everybody is cool with that, except into this rolls the Historic Preservation Commission that says, well, don't you realize this is 100 years old? And it was designed by some architects out of Chicago, and they designed all these hospitals, and most of the hospitals have torn down. Memo to the City Historic Preservation Commission. Why do you think most of the hospitals have been torn down? It's because they did not fit, you know, needs moving forward. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I, to me, you buy it, and and again, you, you should, unless it is clearly 
a, a building with immense historic significance. This is where you know, Abraham Lincoln was, was born or whatever. This is, it's one of hundreds of hospitals that were built by an architecture firm you know, across the country. That's fine. God bless them. But it has outlived its usefulness. And I guess my point is, I would address this to the Historic Preservation Commission, if, if you want to maintain this, fine, you buy it from UWM, and then you figure out what you're going to do with it. Um, number of texts on this. Jeff, just tear it down. It's the people that worked there that counted. It's just a building. Jeff, I think the best win-win situation would be for the historical society to buy the building and move in. Well, yeah, but they don't. Right. But then they'd have the problem of having to maintain it. It's, this is the problem you have in cities that have been around for a long time. At some point in time, buildings reach the end of their functional usefulness. And you, you just you can't pay enough to retrofit them. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, what I find ironic regarding the old St. Mary's building is on the one hand, the city has an ordinance that says if it costs more than the value of the property to refurbish it, which is what I think this does, like Northridge, then they say they want it torn down. But in this case, an, uh, another entity of the city of Milwaukee, the Historical Society, they say, we want this to be saved, even though it costs more than it's worth. I understand their point, but then they should have to pay to have the historic building refurbished, not the owner. Jeff, I was born there. My whole family died there. They are beautiful buildings. There's actually like six buildings on the property, but the one that they they want to level is the the old hospital. They're beautiful buildings. Shame they could not find a use for them, but I get it. See, that's the whole point. It's it's a shame they couldn't find a use for them, but in this particular case, UWM, I think, went that extra mile. What UWM did is they originally said, hey, we, we, we want to try to see if we can preserve this. We want to use it for, like I said, I think it was a school of education at the beginning, but then once they get in, they find... It's just not going to work. The cost of trying to retrofit this old building just exceeded that. Then they said, we'll use it for student housing. Well, the neighbors complain about that. They say, okay, fine. We don't want to fight with the neighbors. So the, the bottom line here is there's no good use for this. Jeff, if it's not on the historic register, get the wrecking ball swinging. No, I do not believe that it's on the um, – it's, it's not – I don't believe it's on the historic uh, register at all. Jeff, I agree with your position, but didn't they get a chance to look at all the issues before they bought the place? Well, I'm sure they did. And I think, again, they didn't go in. They bought it. UWM bought it in 2010. And I think they they clearly bought it with the idea of, hey, we're going to try to figure out some use for this. But, you know, as as you get in there, and anybody who owns property knows sometimes this is it, you get in there and you start looking at things and you say, well, okay, this really isn't suitable for this. And maybe we can turn it into student housing. Oh, now the neighbors are complaining. Maybe we can do it for this. It it wasn't until they'd owned it for seven or eight years, I think, before they said, look, we, we cannot find a feasible alternative for this. That, that makes any sort of dollar sense at, at all. We're not going to take $200 million and put it into a, a building or $100 million, whatever that number might be, $100 million or $200 million, and put it into a building that we bought for $20 million. And then even then, we're still going to have a 100-year-old building with all these different things. So again, I, I would say to the folks on the city's Historic Preservation Commission, you want it, fine, you go ahead and buy it. 
Otherwise, the Common Council gets the final say on this, and I think the Common Council has to decide, gee, what's more valuable to the city of Milwaukee, a decrepit, aging, failing building that's never going to be used for anything, or maybe something new that they would put up there? And one of our texters makes an outstanding point. If the city wants, and they're arguing Northridge needs to be torn down, and by the way, I'm on board with that. Northridge needs to be torn down, and they need to put something else up there that might have some use. Well, if Northridge needs to be torn down, then how can you say, no, we're going to try to stop UWM from finding a use for what is this now vacant building that will continue to be vacant for decades unless something happens? Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. WTMJ and our very own Jane Matinair are teaming up with the Brewers Community Foundation to collect pet supplies for the Wisconsin Humane Society. Join Jane on Wednesday, April 13th from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. outside Halfair Fair Field at American Family Field. They'll be collecting toy uh, dog toys, toy dogs. They'll be collecting dog toys, canned and dry food for cats and dogs, cat litter, training leashes, and doggy treats. For more information, go to WTMJ.com. WTMJ Care is sponsored by Gruber Law Offices. As we talked about repeatedly, um, starting like late November, after Major League Baseball imposed a, a lockout on the players, and remember there was this period of time where they thought that um, the 160 two-game schedule was going to be in jeopardy, and, and opening day was actually, the home opener was supposed to be last Thursday, March 31st. It was postponed. Major League Baseball kicked back the schedule for about a week, and now um, the Brewers are scheduled to open in Chicago on Thursday afternoon. The home opener is a week from Thursday, April 14th, and very much looking forward to, to broadcasting as we, we do as part of our opening day events. I can guarantee you that opening day for the Brewers, that is the home opener, is going to occur. It's going to happen at 4, um, 14 p.m. first pitch on you know Thursday, April 14th. Why can I guarantee it? Well, I can guarantee it because at American Family Field, we have this thing called a roof, and so the game is going to occur. And I can guarantee you that, you know, I don't know what the weather is going to be like. I don't know if it's going to rain. I don't know if it's going to snow. I don't know what your tailgate party is going to look like in the stadium, outside the stadium. But I can guarantee you that once you walk into American Family Field, it's going to be climate controlled and the game will occur which is one of the things that for those of us who went out on a limb a couple decades ago in arguing why the stadium, originally Miller Park, now American Family Field, should be built. Okay, because you know those games are going to occur. Now, the Brewers' regular opener this year is scheduled to occur two days from now, and you will be able to hear it here on WTMJ. Um, I'm looking at the weather. They're playing the Chicago Cubs. And the game, it's like, I think first pitch is like at 120 or something like this. Here's the weather forecast for Chicago for Thursday. Now, I'm on weather underground. Um, Cloudy, the high, so that's the high, meaning maybe like the middle of the afternoon or whatever, 45 degrees. The low, 37 degrees. And it says small precipitation, like 0.04 inches. Now, other forecasts might have it a little bit differently, but 37 to 45. So, you know, it's going to be just a little bit above freezing. Friday, which is when there's another afternoon game scheduled, the forecast, at least that I'm looking at, 
Um, high of 40, so it's getting colder, low of 32, rain and snow showers. So you you are best case scenario. Now, again, it, it could get worse from here. I, I'm pretty confident the forecast isn't going to change and you're not going to see 60 degrees and sunny. Okay, so the, the, the best, this is, I think, like for the Thursday game, it's the best case scenario. It's going to be really, really cold out, outside. And, you know, if you're lucky, it's not going to rain or it's not going to snow, but it could very well rain or, or snow. And it, it got me thinking about all those brewers, home openers, before we had American Family Field, before we had Miller Park. And I can remember I was working here at WTMJ in the last stages of, of then County Stadium. But I can remember as a as a fan when I was in law school in the eighties, they used to they used to actually take a, a holiday. They used to close Marquette Law School, for example, and you know they'd organize the, these giant parties where you'd go out to to the games. I mean, I can remember home opener after home opener sitting there, and I, I guess my my recollection is, gee, it's the fourth inning, it's snowing. Oh my goodness! You know, it, it's maybe the temperature is thirty-six degrees, but it feels like it's twenty-five because you've got this nasty, nasty wind that is coming from somewhere. Our number is eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I just want to take one segment here to sort of reminisce about the, these opening day games because, like I say, it's coming up on on Thursday. It's going to be in Chicago. The forecast I'm looking at suggests it's going to be dry, but it's going to be miserably cold. There, there's no question about it. It's going to be like home openers in Milwaukee. Used to be, for all those of us who remember, going to the home openers at County Stadium. What is your most memorable, and I, I'm talking about kind of like the weather perspective here. I mean, do you remember those days? Do you remember how cold it was in those home openers? Do you remember how cold it would be in those April games? And aren't we lucky to have a, a domed stadium? 855-616-1620. Let's take a quick walk down memory lane, maybe so we can appreciate what we have now. 855-616-1620. Back to discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Yeah, the, the Brewers Home Opener is, is scheduled for a week from Thursday. I can guarantee you that it's going to occur. And I can guarantee you that once you get inside the stadium, you're going to be comfortable. The Brewers Opener is scheduled for this coming Thursday. I was sharing with you the Weather Underground forecast. Uh, one of our texters says, here's what the Chicago NWS forecast for Thursday, Friday at Wrigley. In the 40s, blustery, numerous rain and snow showers, just like here in the old days of County Stadium. I'm so glad we have the roof. I can't believe Minnesota built a new stadium within the last decade without one. Let's start with uh, Chris in New Berlin. Chris, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Back in the mid-80s, I worked at County Stadium as a food vendor. And uh, my first day there, opening day, everyone works. It's all commission. The more you sell, the more you make. I was selling pretzels. I was doing okay, but a friend of mine also, his first day there, he had ice cream. <laughs> it was in the 20s. He quit after one day. Yeah, yeah. you're lugging that ice cream off. Not a lot of demand for that. Maybe on a hot July night, but, you know, on a cold April opening day, no way, huh? Not a fast mover that day. Uh, thanks for going. No, it, it, it's, and, and that, you know, that's the thing. Okay, here, here's here's a day to, to remember. April 7th, 1997. I remember this because I was I was doing a radio show 
on another radio station on while this was happening, April seventh, nineteen ninety seven. Let me let me paint the the scene for you. Home opener at County Stadium. The Brewers are playing the Texas Rangers. All right. The temperature at first pitch is in the low thirties. All right. But there's a 30-mile-an-hour wind coming out of the northwest, so the wind chill is actually about zero. <laughs> okay, so you, you've got opening day, you've got freezing cold conditions, and you have, well, um, alcohol that, that is involved as well. So you've got this. So it's just freezing cold. And then on top of that, Major League Baseball had this idea for a promotion, and and. I, I, look, I, I've been in the radio business for a long time now, and so you know that they come up with these different ideas for different promotions, and some are really good. And there's other promotions where you hope that there's somebody in the room that's going to raise their hand and say, eh, maybe we want to rethink this one. Well, okay, 1997, there was nobody in the room at Major League Baseball to rethink this particular thing because you know what they gave away? to everybody who went into the stadium on opening day in Milwaukee. And again, it was a Major League Baseball promotion. They gave away baseballs. All right, so now imagine this. You are giving projectiles, which can be easily thrown, to a crowd which is largely intoxicated and is just freezing. So what happens is they give away tens of thousands of these baseballs, and because I, mean, I remember, I said, I'm, I'm working on the radio station, I'm on the air, and you're getting these reports because you have, and this wasn't just one or two people, there were thousands of people that were throwing the baseballs onto the field. It looked like it was snowing baseballs, and they'd have to stop the game, and they'd have to have all the attendants come out and, like, clear— obviously, you have to get everybody off the field, the players. Then you have to clear all the baseballs out, and as soon as they'd clear off the baseballs, then you'd have another 2,000 baseballs that got thrown onto the onto the ground, and ultimately it got to the point where they said, if there's one more incident like this, we're going to, uh, we're going to have to forfeit the game. Now, ultimately, they got through the game. I think the Brewers ended up winning. But I always remember at the time thinking, huh, who thought that this was going to be a good idea to take a crowd that is going to be largely intoxicated, put them in essentially zero <laughs> degree weather, and give them stuff they can throw? Hmm, not particularly a great idea. Bob in Elm Grove. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Um, hi, Jeff. Hi, Bob. Um, yes. Uh, when I re- hi, Jeff. When I retired in 13, I uh, took a job as selling 50-50 raffle tickets. Mm-hmm. And on opening day in 13, it was my first day selling them, and they sent me out into the booty uh, lots out east <laughs> uh, because I was the new guy. And uh, I had to walk out there. And as I walked out there, I walked past the men's room by the sausage house, and there was this huge line of guys in line to use the bathroom. Right. And so one guy motioned me over to buy a, a ticket. I thought, oh, great, my first sale. And so I sold him a ticket, and then as I stood there for a second, every guy that moved by me in that line was buying tickets. And I ended up selling hundreds of dollars worth of tickets, and, and it actually sold out just by standing there. But the, but the, best, part, the best part was there were two guys that were from, from some European country, and they were speaking a language I did not understand, and they did not understand me. And when they came to me, um, I asked them if they wanted to buy tickets, you know, like using charades. They opened their wallets, and they they had dollars. So I sold each of them a a $2 ticket, 
and they moved on down the line. <laughs> and a few minutes late, a few minutes later, they came back all angry and upset, and they were waving the tickets in my face. And it was very clear they wanted their money back. And I tried to understand what the deal was. And it turns out that they thought they had to buy a ticket to use the men's room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, they're right. They, 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 absolutely. No, they, like you do in a lot. Thanks for like a lot of places in Europe. That's if you want to use the public facilities, it, it costs you 50 cents or, or a euro or whatever. So obviously they thought that was it. Well, I, you, you get that. That it sounds like you had a great spot if you were going to kind of sell those those tickets. I there was one opening day years ago. You know, we I, I spent five or six years where after I did the radio show, I, I do TV on our sister station, uh, Channel 4. I've told this story before. And and one day, I was doing our broadcast from the, the facility, uh, you know, our mobile broadcast facility, and then they hustled me over for their live at 3 o'clock show. And I was over by the Sausage House as well. Now, this was the, the game, the first pitch was like at 3.15 or, or whatever it was going to be. Or And so you have, by that time, the only people that haven't gone into the game are people that just came to drink and have no intention of going into the game, or it's people who have tickets, but in the six hours that the parking lot has been opened, haven't had enough time to drink all they want. In other words, the crowd, I mean, it's its just, it's not a pretty sight. So I'm there with the camera person, and we're going to be on live TV, and I've got the producer in my ear saying, okay, put people on live TV. And I, I'm, I'm looking around at, at the choice. Well, gee, is it the, the group of people the women who are pulling up their tops and exposing themselves to me, are we going to put them on live TV? How about the group of people that, that have the wiffle ball and the plastic bat, they throw the wiffle ball up in the air, they chug a can of beer, and then try to hit the ball? It, it was kind of amazing, and then they fall down on their butt. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying back to the producer, I'm saying, trust me, we are on live TV. We do not have a delay. This is not what you want to do. Jeff, you got to put somebody on. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um... It will be bad if I try to put – and we ultimately found somebody who I, I don't think said bad words on TV or anything like that. But th- these, these opening day experiences are, are just something. And th- these outdoor stadiums and all, I mean, it's just it, – it'll be packed down at Wrigley Field if the game occurs on Thursday. And it sounds to me like it's going to. But but my goodness, I, I always remember it would probably have been 1984. And so I was out of law school. Like I say, that that used to be a law school tradition. So this was like 84, 85. We're out of law school. And my late wife and I, um, who we we graduated from law school together, and um, uh, another couple that we'd gone to law school with, and they had gotten married as well, we decided to keep the tradition up. So we go to the the game. We're sitting at County Stadium, and we're – it's at the middle of the third inning, and my late wife wasn't a huge baseball fan anyways, but she was there because, you know, I wanted to go. And it's really, really cold. It's wind chill probably in the single digits. And in about the middle of the third inning, it starts to snow. And I mean, it starts to snow hard. And at that point in time, I, I get the look, and it's kind of like, okay, time for us to go. And I always remember as we're walking out of County Stadium, there they had these big kind of like walls. And there's all these guys who decided they didn't want to wait in line to get into the restroom, like our previous caller was talking about. So they're just peeing on the side of the wall. And there's a whole lot of them. And and I remember, I'll never forget the the look on Sue's face. She just kind of looked at me and said, last opening day for for us. And and I I think it was the last opening day for her. I came back for more. Bottom line is, we should be glad we have the roof on the stadium. This is Jeff Wagner back with more in just a minute. One of our texters 
suggests an idea that actually was even more dumb than the idea of let's give away free baseballs on opening day when it's going to be like 32 degrees with a 30 degree with a 30 degree mile mile an hour wind out of the northwest and let's be surprised that all the drunks throw them on the field um jeff i have a bat that was given away in the 70s at the brewers game i can't imagine them giving away bats now right back in the day they used to have what they would call bat night and they would give away uh, a lot of it was like the, the the small, like the souvenir baseball bats, not the full size baseball bats. But but they'd give those away. That ended. The, the thing that brought that to a conclusion is something that happened at Yankee Stadium. So you're talking about New York, and they give they, somebody thinks it's a good idea to give baseball bats, souvenir or otherwise, to a lot of the people that were coming there. And they had a huge incident as people were walking out and they were busting all these um, windows in the parking lot and things like that. And I think that pretty much killed the idea of giving away free souvenir, um, <laughs> souvenir, you know, uh, bats for a while. Um, number of people remember that that game in 90, 1997 I was talking about. Jeff, I really threw the baseballs. I was at the game. What a mess. I remember Phil Garner getting on the microphone and telling everyone to knock it off. Jeff, I was there in 1997 and I still have my baseball. Hmm. You, I think, are one of the few um, that was there. Jeff, my dad was at the game. He kept the ball. I still have that. Well, okay, if there's some proof, I don't know if it was like wrapped up or whatever, but you got proof of it. You've got a real collector's item. Jeff, I worked at the Dairyland Greyhound track. And, of course, that's, that's you know, when, when Greyhound racing came to Wisconsin, the, the Dairyland facility was one of the biggest ones in the country. And, and there was a while because we had dog racing before you had casino gambling at the, at the Indian casinos. And for a year or two, it, dog racing just was an incredible draw. And then once you had the casino gaming, it kind of killed that. But, Jeff, I worked at Dairyland Greyhound Park when it was open. They had a kids' day event. They gave away whistles. That was a worse idea than giving away baseballs. Yeah, every once in a while, you need to sit in that marketing room and you need to kind of say, um, no, <laughs> not a good idea. All right, a lot of stuff coming up on the program. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right, let us turn to a serious topic. I Reasonable people, sensible people, cannot watch read about or listen about the coverage of what has been going on in Ukraine for the last six weeks without being incredibly outraged. Now, I understand that in in some like deep, dark corners of the Internet, there's some people out there who see this as a zero-sum game from a morality standpoint. Oh, Ukrainians aren't good people, etc. But, okay, reality check here. This is a war of aggression that was launched by Vladimir Putin. He thought after decades— of stewing over the fact that the Soviet Union collapsed. He thought that this was going to be an easy way to take over a country that he views as being historically part of of Russia. The Obama administration in 2014 encouraged Putin by allowing him to take Crimea with essentially no response at all. So there's no question in my mind. Putin thought, first of all, I'm going to be able to do this. Ukraine is not going to fight back. Um, The West, 
NATO, etc., didn't object when I stormed into Crimea, so why do I have to think that there's going to be a problem here? And I think he apparently believed that his army was better equipped to deal with this than it actually turned out to be. So from the perspective of, of Russia and their invasion, it has been a complete and total debacle. That is, they did not achieve their military aims. Um, they have been exposed on the worldwide front as being a version of a paper tiger. And because he wasn't able to achieve his military aims, Vladimir Putin has become the, the Hitler of the 2020s. And, and yes, I understand the significance of what I'm saying there. And I'm the guy that says you should really rarely use Hitler or, or Nazi um, uh, comparisons because they almost always break down. But just like Hitler in the Blitzkrieg in 1939 and 1940 recognized that he was not going to be able to defeat Britain in the Battle of Britain, the, the, the air war. So what he turned to do, what he turned to was then, okay, I can't defeat them militarily, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start aiming at civilian targets. I'm going to start trying to kill as many civilians as I possibly can in an effort to demoralize the British people in the hope that they are going to you know, just give up. That's what Putin has been doing. And now that the Russian army is being pushed back, we are seeing what these monsters ha- have done. You're, you're seeing the pictures from the suburbs of the— the mass graves and the, the people who have their hands tied behind their back and are, are shot in, in the back of the head, you know, these executions that are going on. And, and every time Russia gets pushed back further and further, you're, you're seeing more examples of this, just bodies, civilian bodies littering the street, people riding bicycles who were just shot. The Russian army, the soldiers who are conducting this are monsters. The generals and the leaders who are orchestrating this and permitting this to happen are monsters. And, of course, it's all being driven by the principal monster, which is Vladimir Putin. And I, I think, again, for, for all the horror that people are experiencing now, I think it's only going to get worse because, again, as Russia gets pushed back further and further and, and more and more cities or what remain of the cities are liberated, you're going to find more of this uh, occurring. And... I've been arguing for a while now that, I mean, look, the the principal objective has to be to make this stop, to stop the killing of civilians, to stop the destruction of this this country. And and they're not going to surrender. Russia is not going to take over Ukraine. It's it's just not going to happen. Is it possible Russia might be able to take over, you know, certain portions of the country? Maybe. But they're not going to be able to extinguish Ukraine as an independent country. And again, you're you're seeing what they've ended up doing. But nevertheless, there have to be consequences for what has happened. In a civilized world, you do not behave like the barbarian Putin has behaved without consequences. But here's the problem that, that you have when it comes to consequences. It's like, okay, what, what, what can you do unless, unless the free world is willing to declare war on Russia, which is a nuclear you know, power, and, and they're not going to do it, you know, you're, you're not going to— you know, rain the same sort of terror onto Moscow, for example, that the Russian army, you know, perpetrated in Ukraine. So that, that that's kind of, that that's out, that, that sort of military response, that sort of eye for an eye thing. So that, that's not going to happen. On top of that, since Russia is part of the UN Security Council, they've, they've got a veto, they're a permanent member of the Security Council, so they have a veto on anything 
that the United Nations might might choose to do, effectively rendering the United Nations a complete and total paper tiger. It, it, is, it is useless to go through the United Nations because any any substantive thing that the they would decide to do, Russia is going to veto. So as long as Russia is a member of the United Nations and has a permanent veto spot on the national on the United Nations Security Council, nothing's going to happen. So the, the question is, what do we do? And, and other than just simply giving lip service to this, do we have a long term plan to hold Russia accountable? And my answer would be we have to. And here's a couple things that I think need to happen, and then I want to discuss this with you. I think, first of all, the U.N. needs to take a long, hard look at itself and decide whether if if one of the members of the Security Council, in this case Russia, can commit these type of atrocities and can launch a war of aggression, and there's nothing the U.N. can do to stop them because they have a veto power, maybe it's time to dissolve the Security Commission and then reconstitute it without Russia on it. Seriously, what, what, what role does Russia play in the United Nations if they can essentially use their role in the United Nations as a way to block international action against it? Secondly, I think the goal of the free world needs to be the removal of Vladimir Putin. Now, I understand that, that this is something that you can't accomplish overnight, and I'm not talking about, you know, authorizing hit squads to go and try to find him at his Dachau and where, wherever. But I do think this is one where you need to draw that red line. And you need to say, this guy is a monster. And here's the deal. All these sanctions that we have put in place, which are gradually ratcheting up and having an impact, as long as Vladimir Putin is the leader of Russia— Russia will be continue to be treated as an international pariah, and there cannot be normalized relations with Russia as long as he continues to be in power. Now, does that remove him two days from now? No. Does it remove him two months from now? No. But sooner or later, if that's the red line, we cannot have normal relations with this country. Russia cannot be allowed back into the community of, of the civilized world as long as the person who was the architect of what happened continues in power. I, I think he's got to go, and I think that's where you have to start. Red line saying as long as he is in power, there can be no normal relations with Russia, and that's from Germany, and that's from Italy, and that's from Great Britain, that's from the United States, that's from Canada. The, the Leaders of the free world need to stand up, don't they, and say enough is enough and this guy has to go. 855-616-1620. What do you think? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Putin's got to go. And, and, and I think that needs to be one of the things that we have learned now that we're seeing the, these atrocities. I'm, I'm all in favor of war crime trials. That takes years. And the reality is that that doesn't hold Putin accountable because he, it, it just it's almost impossible to hold a, a world leader uh, accountable absent, again, a, a declaration of war. And I don't think anybody's arguing that. But I, I think there has to be there has to be accountability. And what that starts with is saying, as long as he is the leader, the sanctions are going to remain in place. We are going to consider Russia to be an international pariah. We cannot have normalcy. Let's start with Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Welcome back. Thanks. Thank you very much. 
Yeah, so I believe that, uh, first of all, your comparison to Nazi Germany is very close. Him and uh, Hitler are eerily similar in terms of, you know, not being able to accept what happened in Hitler's case, World War One, in Putin's case, the fall of the Soviet Union. And they both took power about the same time after the fall of both of those. So, and Hitler's obviously going down the same road. Uh, Putin's going down the same road as Hitler in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, I don't think... I mean, until he is out of power, I don't think we can have normal relations with Russia. He crossed that line a long time ago. Um, and, yeah, we should have stopped it when he um, went into Crimea. We should have, you know, leveled sanctions against them. I'm surprised that we haven't leveled all the sanctions we could because I just heard today that they're considering more sanctions. I mean, they, everything needs to be leveled against them because he is not going to stop until either the Russian people rise up against them or there's enough external pressure on him to resign or to be kicked out. No, I, I think you're right, Mike. Thanks for calling. Now, I mean, the problem with sanctions is that, okay, you, you have to you, you have to have everybody on board. And, you know, part of the problem is over the years, let's just focus on Germany. Germany gets about, what, half of its energy from Russia. So it's very dependent on that. So it's easy to say, okay, we're going to, it's easy to say to Germany, you you, you shouldn't have been in bed with, with Putin, which is, I think it's fair, and I think a lot of people are recognizing that. But it's easy to say now, okay, we'll just, okay, cut off all ties, and then you say, all right, well, well how are, where's 50% of our energy going to come from? You have to figure out how that is going to be replaced. So that's why, it's in with regard to some sanctions, you know, you, you have to move a little bit slower. I, I appreciate that, but I, I think at some point in time, we need to recognize that you, you can't go back to normal. Now, the other issue that's out there, and one of our Textures raises this, and I kind of alluded to it too. Jeff, why is Russia still a member of the United Nations? It's inexcusable that a member country can do what Russia has done and still be a member, much less a member of the Security Council, to which I say the congregation says amen. That that's what is the purpose of having a United Nations Security Council if one of the permanent members has a, a veto, and one of those permanent members is able to behave in the fashion that Russia has. So, because, see, you got to understand the reality is as long as they've got this veto power that's there, there's never going to be any accountability coming out of the United Nations. To me, I think this is really, really clear. Russia is a rogue country. Now, they're a rogue country that's got nuclear weapons, and that's a problem. But, you know, at some point in time, Maybe what you have to do is say, all right, the, the Security Council and that whole concept, it is it is just not working. And what we're going to do is we are going to make the appropriate findings that Russia has behaved like a rogue state. And our response is going to be, we're going to dissolve the Security Council, and then we're going to rebuild it or recreate it without Russia. I mean, maybe that's the, the way to, to deal with this, because otherwise, why, why have a United Nations? And I say that— I say that sincerely. I mean, why have that? Jeff, I like your idea of removing Putin, but in a dictatorship, if he steps down, some oligarch will step in with the same objectives. Uh, Case in point, Fidel Castro, who was replaced by others with the same ideas. I think it's going to be impossible to remove the leadership in Russia and make them pay for all the destruction in the Ukraine. There is no answer to this war that will be fair to the Ukraine people. Well, no, there's no answer to this that's going to be fair to the Ukraine people. This country has been leveled. You, you, I mean, I don't know what the, I don't know what the economy of of Ukraine was 
before all this happened? I mean, trillion dollars? I don't know, hundreds of billions? Don't, don't know. But, I mean, now you have, what, a quarter of the population that's been turned into permanent refugees. You have thousands or maybe tens of thousands who have been of civilians who have been brutally murdered. You, you can never make this country whole again. But at the same time, I think you have to recognize that you can never tolerate this sort of war of aggression that was not done for any purpose other than the pure interest of conquest. I mean, this this isn't it's it's not some okay civil war that, that's that's going on between you know different factions in a country like Afghanistan or something like that. That's not what this is. This is a pure war of aggression where Vladimir Putin looks at this country, says, "I refuse to recognize that this country should continue to be an independent country, and I want to take." over as a captive state of Russia. He's failed in that endeavor. He has to be held accountable, and I think it starts with pressure on Russia as a country that has a rogue leader. And what do you do? Maybe you boot him out of the United Nations Security Council. And if that means you've got to reconfigure it, then you go ahead and you reconfigure it. You impose draconian sanctions on Russia, recognizing that there is going to be pain across the board. But that, that's that, that's what, what happens. There's going to be pain across the board. And then you say, as long as Putin is in power, you know, the, Russia— All the things that Russia had developed over the last 30 years, the outreach to the West, the economic development, that's gone. And it's not coming back as long as Russia has its leaders. This isn't about, you know, communism. This isn't about socialism. This is about holding people accountable for a war of aggression with thousands and thousands of people dead. And I hope we have the stomach to do that. Okay. Color me skeptical. Here, the the news from the sporting world is that the Brewers' backup catcher that they, they signed him after um, they lost Manny Pena Pena over over the off season. The the Brewers' backup catcher who they signed to a deal. His name is Pedro Severino. He has now been suspended for 80 games, half of the season, for testing positive for a a PED, a performance-enhancing drug. The um, drug that he tested positive for is something called clomiphene, um, C-L-O-M-I-P-H-E-N-E. Okay, his... His explanation is that he and his wife have been trying to have start a family, and so he he went to a doctor and he got you know it, it, this is the reason he took it is because you know they 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 needed they were looking for a fertility drug so they they, they took it and that that's why it's that I and he was shocked that it had this particular thing in it. Okay, um, clomiphene is. It's a drug which is, in fact, a fertility, fertility drug. It is a drug that is given to women to induce ovulation. <laughs> Jane Matinier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It, it's, it's an anti-estrogenic substance. Um, that's right. It, it can be used to alter testosterone levels in men. And, and yes, it does have another purpose. I mean, it, it does, and, and it is a fertility drug. That, that's true. But you give it to women to induce ovulation. If men take it, it is commonly used as a masking agent, which can alter testosterone levels in men. So I don't know. Again, color me skeptical about all this. He says this was just this innocent mistake. I'm just shocked, shocked that, you know, I've tested positive for this thing. Um, But 
and he's and he's not appealing his the fines and stuff like that. So he's going to be suspended for eighty games. But the, the explanation that is being given, and this, I, I had just no idea. And I was just, I, I'm this poor innocent guy because I'm just trying to start a family, etc. Well, okay, if you're trying to start a family, here here's a tip. A man taking an anti uh, taking an, a drug that induces ovulation ain't going to get you any closer to starting the family than you were before you took the drug. That's just me. My favorite text of the day to Jeff Wagner. I agree with you on handling Putin. You are a smart man. Okay, well that's that's one. I said I actually sent back a notice. Said thanks. I have my moments. You know, every every once in a while, <laughs> you, you you have that. I went into um, th- this. It's it's it actually is. One of the fun things about doing a radio show in this market for as long as I have and how much I appreciate you in inviting me into your, your homes or your cars over all, all the years. It's you, you, I went into Batteries Plus this morning. So I, I get in the car this morning as I'm driving into work and I turn on the car and I get that, that error message that says that my, the, the key fob, you know, the, the, my key fob battery is low. So, okay. So there's, there's a, I love Batteries Plus, and there's a Batteries Plus store between where I live and where I work. So I had some time. I, I drive by, and I just, you know, could I have changed the battery in the key fob? Yep, but it's just as easy to stop in and have somebody else do it. So I walk in, and I, I say I need need a new battery for the key fob, and I talk to the guy, nice guy. And, you know, then he um, – so he puts this in, and then he goes, and he asks for my phone number. And I, I've been there before for different things, and he puts my phone number in, and he says, I thought so. He said, I have been listening to you for – I don't know. I, I just I can't remember how long I've been I've been listening to you, and this is really an honor. And I said, "Well, it, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you." And and so I said, I, "I'm just going to geek out here." I, I and and it was just it was really this this very nice thing. And I walked out of there thinking, "Oh, that's 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 pretty cool." So for every one of those texts I get that calls me every name but a child of God, you, you get the other side as well. And I just I never. I really appreciate the the fact, and I used to end every program by saying how I recognize you have a lot of different radio choices, and I appreciate you spending the last few hours with me. I I, I don't say that all the time, but I believe it every time. So it's very, really very, very cool. All right. Drill, baby, drill. There is no question that at some point in time, the world— and the United States, as part of the world, will be able to reduce its need for fossil fuels. All right. We, however, if you live in the real world, that's not where we are now. We're, we're not close to that. We don't have the technology that is developed for renewable energy all across the country. There, there's not enough wind power and solar power to heat homes in Wisconsin in, in January. That, that's just the, the reality. We don't have an electric grid right now that is sufficient to power uh, electric vehicles if everybody who wants a vehicle would have an electric vehicle. We, we just do not have that capability now. And the technology doesn't exist right now for batteries that can let you drive three or four hundred or five hundred miles. We we just don't we don't have that yet. Might we have it at some point in time in the future? Yes, probably. And at some point in the time in the future, might we get to the point where the the renewable forms of energy become affordable? And yeah, there 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 will be a time. I, I recognize that. But that's not today. And it's not five years from now, and it's not going to be probably 10 years from now. At some point in time, 
definitely. And I think it is worthy to try to move towards those goals. But at the same time, we live in the real world. And the real world right now is we need fossil fuels. The other reality in the real world is we've got a lot of fossil fuels. I mean, gasoline is... Oil, for example, is still relatively cheap compared to alternative measures. We are not at a point right now where we're ready to do away with the internal combustion engine. We're we're just not. We need fossil fuels. We're not at a point right now where we're willing to say, okay, we're not going to allow people to use natural gas to heat their homes because uh, if you do— I, tell me how you're going to heat your home in Cudahy, Wisconsin in January. And the answer is, you know, you're, you're not unless you're going to put in fireplaces. And when you put in fireplaces, they pollute more than the natural gas furnaces do. So the truth of the matter is, the way I see it, is in the for a while, and I don't know what a while is, we need fossil fuels. And we need to, especially since the fossil fuels are plentiful and are comparatively cheap, we need to make it easy to get them. Now, now Joe Biden is really torn on this because Joe Biden is an anti-fossil fuel guy. Joe Biden has decided that he's going to, you know, get into bed with the, you know, the, the climate folks. And I, I understand that. But we're not where they want us to be now. So in an effort to try to reduce gas prices, and what's a political move, you know, you had, you know, the president a week or two ago, you know, announced that he was going to tap into the strategic reserve. Okay, that, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But the underlying problem is, at least, especially when we're dealing with Russia now, what we need to do is we need to increase the production of oil. We need to increase our domestic production of oil, and we need to make it easier for us to get oil that we need from friendly countries. So rather than getting in bed with a dictator, dictatorship like Venezuela and bringing in oil from them, what, what's one of the things we could do? Let's, let's increase the amount of oil we get from Canada. Canada's got oil fields. Canada is pumping as much as they possibly can. The problem is that Canada's got the supply, but we're having trouble getting it into the, this country because you can bring in oil by rail. That is expensive. You can bring in oil by pipelines, but part of the problem is the pipelines are pretty much maxed out. So what is the obvious answer? Well, the obvious answer is you build more pipelines, which brings us to, again, the the Keystone Pipeline, which was killed by Joe Biden on his first day in office. The Keystone expansion was supposed to carry about 830,000 barrels a day of Canadian oil, crude oil, from Alberta, Alberta, Canada, to Nebraska. And then it would hook up with existing pipelines, and then it would be taken down to refineries on the, the Gulf Coast. Biden killed that and still refuses to re-examine that. Why? Because, again, you, you have the, the climate folks who say, well, we, we, you know, we want to get you away from, you know, using crude oil, which, which is all great, except we need crude oil. And so because Biden has killed the pipeline, 
what's happening now is the only way we can get oil in is it's not like it's not coming in, but it costs more because we use rail transit or we, we have to bring it in in trucks. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, especially with what is going on in Russia, especially if we want to impose sanctions on Russia. What we're going to need to do is we're going to need to increase domestic production of oil. We're going to need to increase North American production of oil. We are going to need to increase the production of natural gas and oil, crude oil, all across the free world to help some of these countries like Germany get off their dependence from Russian oil. And I think for us, it starts with building more pipelines and drilling more. 855-616-1620. One of the huge mistakes that I think Biden has made is in killing the Keystone Pipeline. I do not suggest that that would have solved all the problems. But we need more pipelines, not less, don't we? 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620. Jeff, absolutely. The U.S. went from energy independence to dependent on oil. Because of this, we are paying double what we should be. It's ridiculous. Jeff, you can remind everybody what those trucks carrying crude oil run on. It already costs more money before it gets refined. A lot of pipeline is gravity, pressure fed, very little in costs. Well, there's, you know, an an element. Jeff, what company who wants to make a profit would invest billions of dollars in a pipeline that won't be utilized to the maximum within 10 years? That's exactly right. We're not at a point right now where we we can use the so-called reliable renewable energy there there's just there's not enough sunshine that's going to produce this and and of course as I've argued before, we need more nuclear power. I mean, that's, I, I understand. Oh, don't you, didn't you see the movie? You know, don't, don't you know about Three Mile Island and stuff? Yeah, I, I, I do. But the, the reality is, if you want to figure out how you're going to generate enough electricity to move us to a grid where you can heat homes in the winter, where you can air condition homes in the summer, and when you have any chance of being able to, I, I don't know, take care of people's vehicles so that they can go to electric vehicles and mass in an affordable fashion, you need to figure out ways that you're going to generate electricity if you're not going to have, again, the uh, if, if you're not going to um, use natural gas or something like that. 855-616-1620. Okay, let's talk to Chuck. Chuck, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, hi, Jeff. Uh, even though I... Uh I totally agree with you. We need to have more production of our oil and um, get that pipeline working that Biden shut down. But the problem with that, when we were producing a lot more oil and do more of that, uh, the the underground drilling and fracking, sure. A lot of, you know, like Alaska, I guess, was exporting a lot of their oil and stuff to Japan and China. Mm -hmm. And in a capitalistic society, I guess the highest bidder will win sometimes, but I guess uh, maybe we got to talk to some of our refineries and the oil companies and say maybe we need to keep that here a little bit more, you well, know, and then we can help out the other countries once we get on our feet. Well, I think. I mean, yeah, no, Chuck, I get it. Gallon gas. Oh no, it, it's going to it's it's a killer. No, thanks for calling. I and I, and I do think. I mean the. 
I think what we need to recognize is, especially when we see what's going on with Russia, which in Russia's economy, and I've said this before, Russia is a giant gas station. Russia isn't like China that by and large makes things and engages in trade with the free world. Russia, it's, Russia sells you know, gas, essentially. I mean, it, it, the crude oil and the things like that. And if we are going to pressure Russia, a rogue nation, what you have to do is you have to recognize that there's going to be a worldwide interest in trying to encourage countries like Germany from from getting off the, the Russia pipelines and things like that. And so I think that that means that we just worldwide have to commit ourselves to increasing, you know, production. And candidly, I would rather have us committing to more pipelines and things like that, doing the fracking, generating more of our supply domestically than I would have us depending on one of the things you're talking about is like Venezuela. And, you know, okay, I, I don't know. You know, Venezuela is a dictatorship as as well. I if it means that you could hurt Russia by deal, doing business with Venezuela, I guess you know may, maybe you could talk me into thinking it's a good idea. But the bigger picture of all this is: don't we want you know don't we want to to not deal with these these places anyhow? And until we're at a position where we're willing to commit to nuclear, where we've developed the renewable energy to a point where we feel comfortable knowing that it can power all our various cars and still turn on all our devices and heat our homes, don't, don't we need to do everything we possibly can to increase domestic production? Uh, Roger. Roger, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Um, that was the first thing that President Biden did as an executive order in at his desk yep. when he became president was to uh, kill, kill Keystone, the Keystone yep. pipeline. And that was basically to appease the lady called Elizabeth Ward. And uh, and the pipelines are so safe, they have cutoffs. How about the Alaskan oil line? There's never been an accident up there. There was one, and that was done by a, uh, a mm-hmm. boat. <laughs> yeah. um, but that is so much safer than these long lines of tank cars. Right, or the rail, car, rail cars. No, thank, thanks for the call, Roger, or, or the rail cars or whatever. And, and you, are, you are exactly right. I mean, this is the, the president had a choice to make, and he's decided that he wants to go with the, the climate left. And look, I, 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 I'm not one of these guys that denies global warming exists, and I, I think you have to have a long-term strategy for dealing with that. And I, and I respect that, and that's why I started this conversation off by saying – there will be a point, and I, I don't know whether it's two years from now or five years from now or ten years from now, there will be a point where we are able to create enough renewable energy to, to power the, the electric vehicles. And, 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 and that, that, that's, that's going to be great, but we're not there now. So the question is, what do we do in the interim while we're developing that technology, especially given the fact that you know we, we have this rogue nation that is Russia, who's economy is dependent on producing oil, don't we need to do something to at least fill in the gap before the quote-unquote renewable energy is ready so that then we'll be in a position to say, okay, we're, we're ready to move to this. But until we reach that point, when, whatever day that might be, we've got to do everything we can, I think, to make sure that we're able to start our cars in the morning and we're able to heat our houses and we're able to turn on the lights and turn on energy to our computers. Just saying. 
So very glad to have you with us. Here's a text, Jeff. Last time I checked, there are roughly 2% of all cars on the road that run on electricity. Nationwide, we have a problem with our electric grid. How can anybody in their right mind think that it's feasible to get more electric cars on the road, let alone a 98% increase? It's going to be a long way away. People have to realize fossil fuels are here for a while. Right, That that's kind of the, the reality of this. And, you know, whenever we talk about electric vehicles and stuff, I know that there's some people who just absolutely love their Priuses and things like that. And that, that's that's great. But the, the truth is the technology right now, as far as battery life and electric grid and how quickly you recharge these things, the technology right now is not there to make electric vehicles a practical everyday thing for all folks. And, and I understand you, you You can have your, your Prius or your Volt or, or whatever it is, and it might be great that you drive around, the, you know, drive back and forth to work for a while, especially in the summer. Winter's more challenging because it drains the battery more, but that, that's okay. And then you charge it up at night. That, that's great. I understand there is a role for that. But right now, you know, if we suddenly said, everybody, you know, we're going to make you trade in your car for an electric vehicle, n- nobody would be able to power the things because the grid just isn't there yet. Someday, maybe. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So delighted to have you with us. All right. There is something going on today that many of you have perhaps maybe you've heard about it, but you're, you're not going to participate in it. And that is, we have this thing called an election that, that is going on. Matter of fact, there are elections that are going on all around the state of Wisconsin. They estimate that in the city of Milwaukee, for example, and this is because Milwaukee is choosing a new mayor. Tom Barrett you know, bailed halfway through his term, and so there is a vacancy and you know we've been talking about this for a while. Cavalier Johnson, who's the acting mayor, running against former alderman Bob Donovan to complete Barrett's term, and then there'll be another mayoral election in 2024. But in Milwaukee, if if history is any indicator, once somebody gets elected, they they don't get unelected for a long time. We've had what five or six mayors in the last hundred years. I mean, it's just that that's just the way it is in Milwaukee. So you know the odds are whoever wins today, Johnson or Donovan, you know chances are they're they're going to be the mayor for for a while. So it's important. Um, you have local school board races, and a lot of these school board races have been getting a lot of different, a lot of attention. And there's there's all these issues that are out there about the school board races becoming politicized. For me, I, I, I'm I'm less obsessed with this than some people are because the truth of the matter is, school board races have always been political, and they've really. As a general rule, the the left and the teachers' unions have pretty much dominated school board races for years and years. And now you're getting to a point where there's a blowback and you have more conservatives who are out there saying, we don't like the direction that some of these school boards are taking the community. And so there's more of a blowback. And so you, you have more political activism. You have the Democratic Party that's endorsing slates of school board candidates and the Republican Party that is doing as well. And the, the other factor is, as far as 
you know, starting people on political careers. It's not, school board is one of the places where you start. You look at a lot of people who are in the legislature or whatever, well, they, they start on they start on local school boards or, you know, on the local county board or whatever, and then end up working their way up. So I'm, I'm not as concerned as some people are about the quote-unquote politicization. I just think it's a, it's a blowback to some individuals and some folks in communities not liking the direction that their school boards are taking, and so they're, they're trying to take back their schools. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, with that. And as I always talk about, too, I mean, elections have consequences. You know, we— we complain about, gee, this. I can't believe these judges, you know, issue this type of sentence or that type of sentence. Well, I mean, this is the opportunity on a day like today where, you know, judges are up for election or re-election. This is an opportunity for people to speak through the ballot boxes. Now, the problem is— you, you don't, first of all, like when it comes to judicial races, you, you don't have a lot of people who, who run. It's typically you do not challenge sitting judges because you make yourself a pariah because other judges don't like that. Hey, you run against, you ran against Frank, well, and you won. Well, I'm not going to, I don't like you because that means somebody else might be inspired to run against me. That There's a lot of that stuff that goes on. But the, these races are all important, whether it's mayor whether it's school board, whether it's county board, don't even get me started on the Milwaukee County Board. There are some real gems that are running for the county board, and who knows whether they're going to win or not. But the truth of the matter is, this is one of those elections that are going to be decided by a very small number of votes. Because turnout's not going to be great. In the city of Milwaukee, where you do have this contested mayor's race, they're they're talking about maybe 20% of the vote. And judging by the number of people who voted early, that, that I think that might even be high, <laughs> to tell you the honest to goodness truth. I think that might be, be high. So, But let, let's assume that that's what it turns out to be, that, okay, the next mayor of Milwaukee is chosen by one out of every five of the potential voters. This is in contrast to the partisan races that are going to be held in November, where you're, you're going to have... I know turnout that's going to be well above 50 percent, I would imagine. Um, And if it was a presidential year, it would be even more. But you have very, very few people who are actually out to vote. So here's what I want to do for one segment of the program. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I want you to be honest. Honest. Are you planning to vote today? Have you voted today? And if you're not planning to vote— why is it? What, why are you going to be sitting this one out? And I promise, I, it, is, it is an honest, legitimate question. I am not going to criticize, but don't you realize it's your civic duty to vote? No, I mean, if, if you don't want to vote, you don't have to vote. I mean, I, 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 if you choose to vote, that, that's great. I have not voted yet. To, normally, I vote in the morning. I haven't voted yet, but I intend to do it on my way home, even though— there's very, very where I live. There's very, very few contested races, but I'm I'm going to go in and vote because I always, almost always do. All right, if if you're voting today, why? But even more importantly, and more interesting, if you've decided you're not going to vote today, why is that? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And again, I just I am I am legitimately curious, and this is coming from somebody who 
I enjoy everything there is about about voting. And, and normally I, I vote in person early, you know, so whatever they call that, that early absentee thing. But I, I like I, I like going in. I like filling out the ballot. You know, today, even though there's almost nothing on the ballot where I live, I'm, I'm going to go in and I'm going to vote after work. But a lot of people won't. They're saying the city of Milwaukee, maybe 20 percent. And that's that's with a contested mayoral race, for goodness sakes. Let's start with Lucy on the west side. Lucy, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I was number five at the Humane Society in Milwaukee at 7.45 this morning. So That is a poor turnout. Yeah, I was going to say, so what What do you attribute it to, Lucy? Why are, and you're city of Milwaukee, so you've got the mayor, mayor's race there. Why Why is turnout so pathetic, if, if, if it turns out to be pathetic? Um, if it turns out to be pathetic, I think that a lot of people have given up on the mayor or any politician really getting much done. Um, and they, they have some reason for that because our powers are so limited by the state. And I don't want to get into a big rant, but right. a lot of people just, just think that it doesn't make any difference anyway. Or um, they don't like the two candidates. Mm-hmm. They, they think that uh, the Cavalier Johnson is, is Barrett in black and that Bob Donovan is too crazy. Yeah. So they're not going to vote. Interesting. No. Um, but but a lot of people are voting. I mean, there's lively discussion all over the neighborhood bulletin boards, um, which which the mainstream media or no media really picks up. There's there's a lot of very motivated people. There just aren't enough. Yeah. Because and, and thanks for calling. No, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what that that ends up translating into. Now, of course, part of it is too. In a lot of communities, you you, you don't you don't have the high-profile race of, hey, we're, we're picking a mayor like the city of Milwaukee is for the first time in 20 years. You have, you have, you have school board races, and, and school board races, like I was saying, they're, they're important. Don't get me wrong, but they're, they're, they tend to be more down-ballot things. They tend to be—I don't know. If you don't have kids in the school system, well, okay, maybe you're not quite as, as focused on that, although you should be because it affects spending and things like that. The candidates typically um, don't have a lot of money, so it's tough to distinguish one candidate from another. It, it, it's all those different things that are out there. So I understand, but still, I, I guess for me, yeah, I'm, even though there's almost nothing on my ballot, I'm, I'm going to vote for it. I'm going to go out and vote, 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Roy in, Ger- in uh, Grafton. Roy, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Roy. Um, I voted, uh, and uh, uh, the races uh, for, like, school board and other offices like that are essentially uncontested here. So yeah. there really wasn't anything to vote for, but I voted for the uh, the judgeship, and um, I'm very strongly anti-Donald Trump, and I picked out, even though it was a nonpartisan race, uh, you know, one of the uh, candidates for the judge uh, judgeship was... Uh, getting a lot of support from uh, Trump people. And uh, so I chose to vote for the other candidate uh, for that reason. That's what got me out to vote. Yeah, you're talking about the Court of Appeals race, right, in uh, in, in your area, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, got it. No, thanks for calling. Yeah, well, that that's it. There's yeah, there's a Court of Appeals race, and um, one of the candidates is Maria Lazar, who's a Waukesha County District Circuit Judge, and um, the other candidate, whose name is escaping me off the top of my head, was uh, was an Evers appointee. And, and there's been some TV ads about that. My my prediction, I guess, would be I think Lazar is going to win. But again, th- this is one where the, the candidates have kind of aligned in some respects, you know, politically. Don't 
but that's you know that that's one that's contested. But but the reality is, and I think he was alluding to it. There's not a lot of there, there's not a lot of contested races to draw people out. Here's a text, Jeff. I voted today in the city of Milwaukee. There were six unopposed judges and unopposed county supervisor and a mayoral race. Um, had to do something I, I never thought I could do. I voted for Bob Donovan. I was sixty number sixty four voter at ten forty five. That again sounds low to me. I just never. It's always tough to say because whenever we do election days, people call up and say, well, I was number 15 at this point in time. And, and unless you know exactly what the the poll thing is, that you, you don't know what that means. But again, my, my guess is that this is, it's again going to be a low turnout vote. Jeff, I'm voting today because I still believe that my vote counts. I realize, I believe in past elections have been stolen, but I still want to show support for those who run and I feel are going to make the changes needed. You see, one of the things, and I don't mean to be Pollyanna about this, but one of the things about going out and voting today is that your vote counts more than ever because, now now hear me out on this, well, it's one person, one vote. Yeah, Yeah, it is. But if... If you're only going to have a turnout of 20 percent, so if only one out of five eligible voters votes, that, that one vote that you're going to cast today, that, that counts more. It has more of an impact than if the turnout were 50 or 60 percent. So, you know, if, if you feel strongly about, you know, this candidate or that candidate, I, I think it's important. Jeff, I voted. Cudahy has been in significant decline since my wife and I moved there six years ago. Hopefully a new mayor will be able to reverse that trend. Um, Heather in West Bend says, my husband and I were number 101 and number two, 102 at District 1 in West Bend at about 1030 this morning. Again, I, it's, I, I, can't, I don't know if that's good or bad or, or whatever. Jeff, my wife and I voted absentee last week. No big contest on the ballot, but we always votes, vote. This gives us the right to question and debate issues. Well, I do. I mean, I mean it's, look, it's it's a cliche, but it, it's true. I mean, you're supposed to say if you, if you don't vote, you shouldn't complain. Now, I understand that you get the right to complain regardless. But nevertheless, as I keep saying, elections do have consequences. And I think if you want to complain about something, you maybe have a little bit more status of complaining if, in fact, you went and, and voted. Jeff, I voted. I spent a couple hours researching school board candidates, something I've never done in 30 years of voting. I don't even have a kid in school, but I'm extremely concerned about the recent direction of our government. Um, Yeah. Jeff, my wife and I are voting in person later today. I believe it is a responsibility and a duty. Um, Jeff, the Keel School Board has three members up for re-election. The three candidates running against them are very conservative. This meant enough for me to go out and vote because I think it's time for the silent majority to speak up and parents to be heard. Yeah, like I was saying earlier, I don't—I'm not as— I'm not as upset about the, the quote-unquote politicization of, of school boards as, as some are. And I think they are, in fact, getting more political. But to me, this is just th- this pushback. School boards have been, I think, in many respects, much more liberal than, in many cases, the community they represent, because these races have been under the, the radar screen. And now you're starting to see that this pushback and conservatives saying, look, we just don't like the direction of the, 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 the school board is going with regard to this issue or COVID or, or whatever that might be. And so they're trying to, to take back some of these 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 positions and I mean local government is really very important you know it's there, there's no question that um, you know what 
what Tammy Baldwin or Ron Johnson does in Washington it is significant, no, no question about it. But a lot of times when you're looking at stuff that's going to impact your daily life, well, it, it, it is, in fact, it's, it's on the, the local level where you've got the mayor and the members of the common council or the village board or the city commissioner, whatever it is, they're going to be the ones making the decision about, hey, are we going to rezone that lot down the street so they're going to put up the Walmart supercenter? They're, they're the ones that are, are really making those, those micro sort of decisions that have a, a much greater effect on our daily lives than a lot of the stuff that goes on in Washington. James on the South Side. James, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, uh, Jeff, uh, you know, um, I hear like California and a few other places are, push, are pushing their um, uh, stuff like this uh, from um, April to uh, to November. Why can't we do that in our state, too? Because like you were saying before, well, okay, is it uh, one out of five? You know, twenty percent. That that's a little more um, has a little more uh, meaning or whatever it is. But wouldn't it wouldn't it be nicer to see fifty or sixty or seventy percent for the mayor or for for whatever it is, school board or or some of these referendums and everything else, and people really feeling good that they really voted and seen something you know positive in our daily lives compared to. You know, just saying, okay, only twenty or fifteen percent or ten percent voted, or, or whatever it is. Oh, so you're it's saying like, uh, you're saying have have one one election day. So change. I, I think you'd have to change the state constitution, but but change get, essentially get rid of get rid of the April nonpartisan election, and then have the nonpartisan election and the partisan election on the same days in no, in November, essentially. Right. Yeah. Huh. Why not? Yeah, thanks. I got to think that one through. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure off the top of my head, you'd have to change the state constitution. I and I have to, I'd have to, I'd have to think that through. I guess I don't know. Should you have to do stuff like that to, to artificially boost participation? I mean, if if you don't care enough about the mayor and the judges to get out and, and vote in April. Does that say that maybe you just don't care enough about it to do it? In any event, there is an election going on. <laughs> there, there is an election going on today, and um, even even if you don't have a lot on the ballot, even if you don't live in the city of Milwaukee, and I, I recognize that you know I know where our listeners come from, and probably the, the vast majority of people who are listening to this program right now don't live in the city of Milwaukee, so you can't vote for mayor. But I guarantee you, there's there's going to be there's going to be races that you can in fact vote for. So you, you've got time. The polls are open until uh, this evening. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Well, there was an interesting nugget in Mike Spaulding's newscast. Perhaps not a surprise, but if you want to know the question, if if the question is, who are the biggest suckers in America today? The, the answer is clear. The biggest suckers are any of you who have had student loan payments, who have paid one dime on those student loan payments since March of 2020. If you haven't been following this, when the pandemic first hit, people lost their jobs and everything shut down in March of 2020, which was two years ago, uh, Donald Trump, then president, came in and temporarily suspended student loan payments. So anybody who had student loans, and right now there's about one point, well, at least $1.6 trillion in student debt. At least $1.6. It, it's probably more than that, but that's the number I had. So Trump initially suspended that. And then Congress followed through and said, okay, you, you don't 
people don't have to make payments and the interest is not going to accumulate. Okay, that that's fine. It's because we were in the middle of a pandemic and this was a another way of giving COVID relief to, to people. Don't worry about making the payments on the student loans while you've, you know, you might be out of your job or, or whatever or struggling. Okay, fine. Uh, Trump extended it once. Since Biden has taken over, he has extended four times the moratorium on student debt. The most recent one was scheduled to expire, what was it, is it May 1st when it was scheduled to expire? Uh, yeah, May 1st, um, there, May, there was a, a 90-day, first of all, it was supposed to ex, uh, expire in February, but then keep in mind we, we had the Omicron variant and never wanting to let a good crisis go to waste. Biden used that as an excuse to extend the moratorium till May 1st. All right, so starting May 1st, people were going to have to start resuming making payments on their student debt. Well, it's going to be formally announced today, but the story tomorrow, but the story's leaked now that that deadline has now been extended till the end of August, so May, June, July, August, another four months with no indication in sight that Joe Biden ever requires or is thinking about realistically making people pay back a dime of their student loans. Um, now, from a political perspective, this is a political year, and Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, and Elizabeth Warren, they're arguing that the government should just go in and cancel $50,000 worth of student debt. So if you borrowed fifty, the first fifty grand, we we're just going to forget about it. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I find this whole thing to be insulting. It just, look, if I take a loan out and I don't pay it back, the government isn't going to come in and say, Jeff, that car loan you took out, we're going to just, we're going to pay it off for you. You don't have to pay that back. If I take out a mortgage on my house and I don't pay that back, at some point in time, well, the interest is going to continue to accumulate, and at some point in time, I'm going to come and get foreclosed on that. I, I do not see how this is any different at all. Nobody holds a gun to your head to take out a student loan. And if you decide that, you know, I want to go to an Ivy League college or whatever, and I want to borrow a whole bunch of money to do that, and I sign this piece of paper saying, in exchange for getting the money, I'm going to repay that, I don't see why the government should be bailing you out. The other truth is that for a lot of these student loans, they're not used exclusively for educational purposes. They're used, hey, we're going to help pay tuition, but you know what? We're going to use them to pay our rent. We're going to use them you know, to do other things. But the bottom line is, it's it's an obligation that you undertook. And I understand, well, gee, if you didn't have to pay your student loan back, you'd have a lot more money to spend on other things. Well, okay, duh. <laughs> what, what, what does that mean? I can make the same argument if I, didn't, if I didn't have to make my mortgage payment or if I didn't have to pay down you know, something else. You'd have more money to spend on something else. That, that doesn't matter. You have an obligation to pay these things back. 
as I have said before, if you want to talk about student loan relief, maybe you talk about adjusting interest rates because some of the interest rates that people are paying are really, really onerous. Maybe bring it down to closer to what would be a market-level interest rate right now. I'm open to that discussion. But this idea that we're going to continue to tell people that you don't have to pay your loans, I think, is insulting. On top of that, at what point does the pandemic end? I mean, at at what point do we say, okay, things are now back to, to normal? Never let a good crisis go to waste. Joe Biden just canceled Title 42. Title 42 was the, the law, the rule that allowed at the border the government to, to send back because of COVID, to send back during the pandemic, to send people, to turn them away from the border. He said, hey, the pandemic's over for all intents and purposes. We don't need it for that. But now you're going to continue it for this? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Jeff and Lowell. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Uh, I had a friend try to call in last week on the same subject. And... Uh, and I think he's got a great idea, and, and he got upset because he didn't get put on the air. But what he was saying is, hey, if you want your loan repaid, that's fine. Let the government do it. But you do not, re- you do not recover Social Security until you recover that money. Hmm. I don't know how you feel about that, but I, I think that's something that both Democrats and Republicans could get together on and say, hey, you know, okay, you know, you, you got this huge debt. Well, uh, I mean, here, instead of collecting at 67, I, I don't know how you feel about that. Well, Jeff, I, I think, think, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Look, I, 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 that, to me, that's a political non starter because. It, it, it's kind of like apples and oranges, and that would be really easy to to say. Okay, well, I'm I'm going to I'm going to take my student loan debt, and I'm going to have it put against my Social Security stuff, and then you hit 62 or 65, and you've got no Social Security available and nothing to live on, and that's a huge political thing. Now, I I don't think we should be forgiving debt. If you want to renegotiate, like I say, the interest payments, I'm okay with that. I'm I'm open to this, but the amount of these are, are debts that you accumulated legitimately. No, like I say, nobody holds a gun to your head and say, hey, you, you, have to, you have to choose this particular course of schooling, or you have to go to this school as opposed to this other one. And what does it say to all of you out there who worked your butts off, who, who maybe made a choice and said, you know— I'd really like to go away to college, and I'd love to go to Pepperdine in California. But you know what? Pepperdine in California is forty grand a year, and and you know I don't want to take out all these student loans to do it. And so you know I, I'm I'm not going to have a great view of the Pacific Ocean. I'm going to go to UWM, and, and I'm going to stay local, and I'm going to live at home, and I'm going to you know pay in state tuition, and I'm going to work my way through school, and, and maybe I'll take a couple loans, but they're going to be manageable. What does it say to all of you who were responsible, you know, who who worked your way through school. What does it say to all of you parents out there who saved money, who put that money in their kids' EdVest accounts and things like that so that, you know, you could you could pay you, you gave up all those things. You didn't get that new car. You didn't go on the, the three vacations that you might like to have gone on because you were putting away money so that your kids could go to school. You know what it says when you do what Biden's doing now? It just says you were suckers. 855-616-1620. We continue the conversation in a moment. 
What's so really infuriating about this is Biden is using this COVID as an excuse to keep extending the moratorium. Come on. I mean, people are back to work. If you don't have a job right now, it's because you don't want to work. That's just kind of the reality that's out there. And to use COVID as an excuse to continue to not require people to pay on their student loans, I think is absolutely appalling. Jeff, nothing boils a text. Nothing boils my blood more. I'm a 33 year. I'm 33 years old. I got a four year degree from Madison. I busted my butt to get those loans paid off five years ago. To which I would say, sucker. I'm usually pretty reason I'm usually a pretty reasonable person and I always try to understand the reasoning behind the opposite opinion. I see absolutely no logic in this. It's everything that's wrong with the direction that our country is going. Um, yeah, Jeff, my wife, my wife worked very hard to get her degree, um, or bachelor's degree, and we paid for it as we could, and we finally got finished with it. Now I'm wondering if I can get a refund. Yeah, that, see, that, that's, that's my question. If not, why not? I mean, I, I, I went to law school, took out student loans. My late wife, you know, we went to, to law school. We were classmates, took out student loans. We, we paid them back. We, so, okay, hey, Joe, I, I can use that money. Trust me, give me that money that we paid back. Back, I'm going to put it in the economy. I got all sorts of great things that I could do with that. Jan in Sister Bay. Jan, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi um, I think Mitch McConnell is totally a political thing um, on one hand. On the other hand, my oldest granddaughter um, has considerable student debt. Um, she works all the way through college, her undergraduate and master's degrees, but she also um, put some, I don't know how she did it, but did some traveling on her student loan money. And uh, no, I think that that's not acceptable. And I think that she is going to have to pay all that back. I I do think that student loans are important. Um, They get a lot of people through school. And I think most people do pay them back. Um, I think that they're just some some things with her loans that I don't agree with. I love her to pieces, but oh, sure. I think she needs to pay it back. Right, exactly. No, no thanks to call. So here, and every once in a while, I get people who text me who just, I, I, they, they just want to disagree, I think, for the sake of being disagreeable. The only people who don't want student loans forgiven are people who, do, people who it doesn't benefit. That's pretty selfish. So, okay, and there's a school of thought that's out there that if you don't want to wipe away $1.6 trillion in student debt, you, in fact, are, are selfish. Well, my response is, it's selfish to expect taxpayers to pay for loans other people have, have taken out that they get no benefit for. That's that's what the selfish is. Gee, I, I pay off my mortgage. Pay off your mortgage. It's selfish. You mean you mean to tell you mean to tell me, you know, Frank, that you don't want to pay off Harry's mortgage? Well, how selfish of you is that? That that that's the arrogance that's around there. Look, I I think the what what happens is again, if if you want to talk about renegotiating the interest rate, I think that. That, to me, is, I think, a reasonable form of, of, again, student loan relief to kind of get it back to more of a market-based sort of thing. But this this is the bottom line. I think you've got to reach a certain point where you say these are legitimate obligations. And look, here's the reality. This is a vote-buying scheme. It is is nothing more and and nothing less. This is pandering to a certain segment of the electorate and saying, hey, you've you've got free stuff. Explain to me. Why a retiree living on a fixed income should have to pay for 
the student loan that somebody took out to, I, I don't know, get, get a medical degree. So, you know, they're, they're at some point in time going to be making big money or whatever, but that, that person on the fixed income, they're the ones that have to, to pay the taxes to, to pay off of this. And I keep coming back to the basic principle that, that nobody holds a gun to your head and forces you to, um, you know, forces you to, to take out these loans. These are choices you make. Now, look, if you want to criticize some of the colleges and universities, I'm, I'm all for that because I think that um, – I think that colleges and universities continue to raise tuition over and over again, knowing that you'd have these loan programs that would bail them out because the students would keep coming because they could just keep borrowing more and more money. And, and that's a fair issue. But it's still it's a decision that was made by the kids to borrow it. Jeff, I absolutely do not agree with paying off student debt. I chose a college that I could afford. I paid back my loans and I paid for law school. I'm currently helping my daughter attend college to graduate without debt. I would like a $50,000 refund of my money spent apparently being responsible and teaching my daughter the same make us chumps. Yes, yes, exactly. There, there's no other way, you know, to determine that, right? It's you, you if you decided, and I will tell you something, if you, there's a lot of people during this pandemic who weren't adversely affected, you know, and and who, who didn't lose their jobs, who didn't take a cut in pay, and yet this moratorium applied to them a- as well. We're not even talking about people who come in and demonstrate that they've been devastated by COVID. We're just talking about anybody. So you, again, I'll, I'll use that example. Let's say you've gone to law school, you've come out with a lot of debt, you're working at some silk stocking law firm, and you're paying it, you're making $250,000 a year. You have not had to pay your student loan debt back, regardless of whether you were adversely impacted by COVID. This whole thing is a vote-buying scam. It sounds great. Here, we're, we're going to just make $1.6 trillion in debt go away. Well, you can't just make $1.6 trillion in debt go away. It's got to come from somewhere. And I guess that the approach that Joe Biden is taking, at least for the time being, is that's going to come from other taxpayers. Like I say, those of you who did the right thing, those of you who paid off your loans, those of you who didn't go to as expensive a college so you didn't have to take out loans, those of you who worked through college, those of you who saved money to help put your kids through college so they could come out with debt, debt free, you're, you're all giant all day suckers because at least the plan right now appears to be for another four months there's going to be a moratorium and who knows what's going to happen after that. Come August, you know, when you're looking at the midterms in another couple months, does anybody really think Biden's going to make people start repaying student loans a few months before the midterms? Well, okay, any chance of that? Slim to none, slim on a bus out of town. When we come back, we'll find out what John McCure has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.